Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. So it's only been a few days since I returned back from the Comrades Marathon in Durban. And uh, for those of you that live in South Africa or are anywhere part of the ultra-distance world, you'll know the Comrades Marathon pretty well. In uh, American terms, it's 56 miles. In uh, the metric, it's 90 kilometers, or to be exact, it was 89.889 kilometers. And in South Africa, it's a bit of an institution because it's probably and is our biggest race of the year, surprisingly, despite the distance that people have to run. And it's had a two-year hiatus because of the COVID pandemic. So this year was, a, as they said in the promotional marketing material, it was the return which was the uh, the theme sort of uh, slogan behind the Comrades Marathon this year. So it's always a fascinating place to uh, see the human spirit at its very best because uh, you kind of get a bit blasé after being at um, every single Comrades Marathon since I think 1990. I've either been there as a as a journalist, I've run it twice, I've been there as a TV commentator, and now that I work there is not only as a runner's wool editor but also as an announcer. And... Uh, one thing that I kind of went in there, having not been part of it for the last couple of years, it's just going to see, particularly in that last hour of the finish, when you see literally half the field, and this is what's interesting, because when we were able to see the results of the Comrades Marathon, we have a results screen in front of us, and with an hour to go, more than half the field hadn't finished yet. That just shows you how many people were Fellow finishing. Fellow how many there are. It's the, biggest, it's the biggest ultra in the world. It's the biggest ultra in the world. And they have how many starts? So normally, in a normal year, in 2019, they had something like 23 or 24,000 um, uh, entrants, and then I think about 18,000 started. This year wasn't so big because they increased the interview by almost double from 2019. So entries went down, but obviously they needed mm. to do that because you know they've had two years of um, no events. So they've been trying to sort of recoup and get themselves back on track, but they've had to double the entry fee. So they had uh, 15,500 entrants and I think 13,200 starters. And surprisingly, out, out of that 13,200 starters, 11,700 finished in the end, hmm. which was quite a remarkable uh, uh, sort of percentage of those that had finished. Um, I thought, you know, I think in the, in, the, in the past, we normally see around about 10 to 15% that don't finish. But this year, it was a higher percentage. I'm not quite sure why. Um, but it is an amazing event. That last hour when we we're on the finishing line and we've got the mic in our hands and we're high-fiving guys as they come down that finishing line, it is, it's really quite spectacular because the journey for those runners, particularly those runners doing 10, 11, and 12 hours, 12 hours is the cutoff. And in South Africa, and this is probably unfamiliar territory for many of the international runners, if you run a marathon in York and England and that sort of thing, 
cutoffs are not really part of the scenario because you can literally walk around the course as some people have done in a bell suit and still do it over three days and get a medal. Whereas in South Africa, cutoffs are almost part of the tradition of racing, not only at the Comrades Marathon, but also the Two Oceans and the Cape Town Marathon. So cutoffs are like part of the drama. So that last couple of minutes before the 12-hour cutoff is dramatic. People are stumbling across the line and you know collapsing on the finishing line. And with us, we watched a woman who was literally... 10 meters from the finishing line as the gun went. And when the gun goes, she is not a finisher. There's no medal, there's nothing. She is not classified as a finisher. It's brutal. Mm. And yet she's run 88.888 kilometers. It is great television, though. It is great I, television. I try to watch the race, and I, I couldn't get over the commentary. It's just, it's just so poor. It is. For the most part. They've but the, only, the, the, the 30 minutes that I make an exception is the last 30 minutes. I'd rather not, not watch. The, not the winner. I don't care for the winning. No, it's... <laughs> I don't find it particularly exciting, but the last 30 minutes is great because you know, you've learned over the course of like the first, te- well, not 10 hours, but five hours from mm. first finisher to last that uh, if the person, it takes the best athlete one and a half minutes to go from that intersection to the finish line. Mm. So by the end, you're saying, okay, I'm going to give them four minutes. Yes. <laughs> and then you see someone wearing a blue vest and, a- and wearing a yellow cap and you say, not going to make it. Yes. <laughs> and sure enough, he makes it because some way. Yeah. <laughs> And then meanwhile, there's some guys who are on the grass with 200 meters to go in four minutes and they don't make it. Yep. And so it really is. It's, it's great television, actually. Yeah. So one of the more fascinating stories of the Comrades Marathon was a woman by the name of Jenna Taranor, who finished in fourth place amongst the women, and that's the women's elite. And uh, you'll see in an interview that we did with her on our podcast app, if you go down and scroll through our podcast over the last couple of days, you'll see an interview titled Jenna, Jenna's Crawl, where she talks a little bit about her experience on the day. But she was one of the most dramatic stories because she came through the finishing tunnel. So the finishing tunnel is around about probably 400 meters from the finish. They come through the finishing tunnel, which takes them into the middle of the finishing stadium. And then they've probably got about 300 meters from the stadium around sort of soccer pitch and then into the finish line. And she collapsed as she went into the tunnel and she had to crawl across to the barriers, pull herself up mm. with the aid of a of, an, of one of the security personnel there to kind of get it back on her feet. She managed to make it through the finishing line, but t- literally 10 meters before the finishing line, she collapsed. The legs just gave away underneath her and uh, people try to help her up and fellow runners try to help her up and eventually she just crawled across the line and of, of course for the television audience that was absolutely fantastic mm. to watch the drama of it and every single newspaper the next day had a picture of the fourth place lady crawling across the line and also and actually maybe we can find because it was shown on youtube i think yes i'm sure we can and find so actually i'm yes. going to put i'm going to put a link for patrons in the patron page and you can actually see it because there were two men with her and the rule of the race is you're not allowed to help another runner if, if yes, that's true. Correctly. You're not allowed to help another one. Yeah. They, they, they did that, incidentally, for safety reasons. We'll get onto some of the medical things around comrades because yep. it's fascinating for that as well. Mm. But but one of the runners tried to help and the other one basically attacked him off her. Did you remember that? That's right, yeah. said, no, 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 leave her, leave her, because otherwise you get the athlete disqualified. Mm-hmm. But she's lucky she had enough presence of mind to crawl the last 10 meters. Because mm. you've seen, I've seen athletes in that situation and they, it takes them 20 minutes because they don't think to just crawl. Yeah. They keep trying to stand up and they don't. The, the, there's a silver cutoff as well, seven and a half, right? Yep, seven and a half. And there were, two, there were two men who got to within 10 meters of the finish line with so much time left. And then it was as if an invisible force field stopped them from carrying on. Yeah. And they both they both stood there for about thirty seconds, unable to take one more step yeah. to get a silver medal after yeah. seven hours, twenty nine minutes, and fifty seconds of running. And they and they missed silver. So mm. you mm. see this quite a lot. And Jenna, 
Jenna managed to at least not lose a place and mm. finish. So. Mm. And what's interesting, and we will get on to the sort of medical and the physical feats that are yeah. part of the Comrades Marathon and ultra distance running in general, um, because we'll talk a bit about some of the other big events that will be happening in the last week. But um, what, what's interesting is that she was pretty, in terms of her mental side of things, Compass mentis. She didn't look like she was delirious. She just her legs had just given in, and when she crossed the line, her her family were there, and uh, she was able to um, kind of hug them and stand up, and she was fine within about a couple of minutes of finishing. But just the legs mm. didn't have it, and she's she's a strong runner, forty years old, and lots of experience. And uh, who's like a two two th- low two thirty marathon? I think. Yeah, I think she's probably about a two thirty six marathon. Two thirty. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, <laughs> she was. She looked to me like she was laughing at herself. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. Which is either a sign of delirium or actually she's so she had so much presence of mind that mm. she could actually look at herself and laugh. That's why I would like to hear from her what yes. was going through her mind and whether she knew one k from the finish or ten k from the finish or not at all. Yeah, what was about to happen? That that to me is always interesting. Is did you see it coming? Yeah, yeah. Mm. Right, so before we get into the world of endurance running and ultra-distance running, let's uh, get to our first segment, our regular segment at the start, our Caught My Eyes and our Patreon uh, supporters who have been sending us some interesting uh, uh, Caught My Eyes this week, Ross. Yeah, and the one that we'll discuss mostly today is in, in line with our theme of ultramarathons, and it came from Hans Christian Smedrud. Not Anderson. No, Hans Christian <laughs> Smedrud, who incidentally is the same patron who a few months back sent us a link to Niels van der Poel's training. Remember the crazy ice skating speed skater? Mm-hmm. Anyway, he came he came with another one on um, ultra runners and specifically trail versus marathon runners. So let's let's park that for now and get onto some others because there's a few things that caught my eye this week. Um, you've already basically done your caught your eye because your yeah. your eye was caught by twelve thousand finishes, finishes. comments. Um, <laughs> but the, there was an interesting story coming out of the New York where the women's well both the men's and women's Grand Slam last Grand Slam of the years on the go the U.S. Open. Turns out that the U.S. Open is the only tournament that uses different balls for men and women. Oh, wow. And I didn't know this until no. I saw this article. So it, it's published in The Guardian and Igor Swantek, who's the world number one, basically I was asked in a press conference her opinion over the balls. <laughs> and she wades into this without holding back, basically saying um, that they started a war now. <laughs> it's a bit hyperbolic, but nevertheless. So, so what happens is the men use something called the Wilson's US Open Extra Duty Ball. And the women use a regular duty ball, which is slightly thinner and has a less fluffy felt cover. And so it's lighter and faster and more aerodynamic. And the, the rationale apparently is that they were concerned that women would develop joint injuries from hitting a slightly heavier ball, which seems preposterous to me, but wow. there you go. Okay. But a lot of the women complain about it. Swantek says, I think those balls are horrible, especially after three games of hard playing. They're getting more and more light. At the end, you can't even serve 170 Ks an hour because it's going to fly like crazy. So I think they're pretty bad. And a bunch of others, the U.S. number one at the moment, the world number four, similar statements. And then the, the men's U.S. number one is a guy called Taylor Fritz, and he says that uh, he can serve 150 miles an hour with a girl's ball. They fly more, they're a bit lighter. So it's just interesting to me that they, because we've discussed on this podcast, obviously, male-female differences. Mm. We spoke about how there's even a paper out of Norway that argues that in soccer or football, depending where in the world you are, the woman should in fact have lighter ball because it's disproportionately heavy. Yes. And here tennis is doing it and it's actually controversial. Yeah. And the women don't want it. <laughs> so there you go. So it's pretty interesting. And and Swantec has been quite vocal on this for a few weeks actually. 
doesn't enjoy playing in the US, I believe, because of this issue. And so so really does it sound like the US Open is the only, or US events are the only events that do that? I mean, mm, and certainly does it apply US, to the other majors? Or no, not? it's the only major for sure. I stand corrected. <laughs> like I was watching in Cincinnati the week before, uh, and I'm, I don't know whether it's the case there. I think it might be, but I haven't seen anything. But certainly in the US Open, it's the only one. So anyway, I just saw that and I thought it quite interesting. Yeah, that's that, news um, to me. And, and you know what I was thinking is that tennis is a sport where there's so much data that I don't think they use very well. Mm. Subsequent to this, I saw a tweet comparing men's and women's serve speeds. And of course, as you might expect, the difference in the shoulder and the height of men compared to women, they can generate so much more power and speed on the serve. But here it was quantified. That's just one. I mean, that's the most basic thing you can possibly show. Mm. Imagine how many other cool things there would be, average ground stroke speed. Mm. And they've got all this, right? Because when you watch tennis in the next week or so at the US Open, you'll see them show Hawkeye stats. I used to love seeing a stat where they showed average hit point on return of serve. And they'd show the baseline and where the player was hitting the ball in relation to the baseline. And they'd show first set, two meters behind, second set, half a meter behind. So then obviously the players made a conscious decision to step in and take the serve earlier. Mm. That's cool tactical insight. They use it so infrequently. But when I was reading this article, I thought it would be what an awesome job to be data controller for tennis yeah. and to try and like, because you love a bit of tennis yeah, as well. I love I a know. bit of tennis, absolutely. And uh, I, I think tennis is one of the sports that's most underrealizes the value of its own data. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And this ball issue you could solve, not solve, but you could get a ton of insight. You know, so she says, for instance, you can't control the ball when it gets lighter and it flies all over the place. That makes sense, though, doesn't it? So there's yeah. a hypothesis there. Unforced errors will be higher in the fifth, sixth, and seventh game before the new balls than in the first three. Mm. Is that true or not? Yeah. Be interesting to know. Well, so, there must be tennis statisticians. For sure there will be. I mean, whether I mean, they study that would be interesting yeah, compared I mean, we, to other Grand Slams. Exactly. We just have a passing interest, right, mm. in, in, the, in the sport. Because the surface would make a big difference as well. No. Of course, like yeah. so. That's why the yeah. serve is a good, good shot to analyze because yeah. it's independent of surface. Mm. But yeah, I mean, like take hard court Australia, US, and then take all the other hard court events that use the same ball around the world and compare them and say, mm. okay, what is the woman's first serve speed? What is the average speed on the third and fourth shots of a rally? So once you take the serve and the return out, unforced errors on the. You know, there's so many cool ways that you would be mm. able to get into this discussion. Do but you know if this was the first year that they did this? Or? No, it's always, I believe it's always been the case. case yeah. And funnily enough, some players love it, right? So Madison Keys is one of the better US players. It's my favorite ball. <laughs> she says the consistent speed of the ball suits her. Petra Kavitova, who's a Grand Slam winner and has recently made the final in Cincinnati, says, I love it. Describing their tendency to fly as a virtue. <laughs> so yeah. anyway, it's personal preference, but interesting yeah. and Again, I'm biased, but I look at this and say, geez, like, there's so much data that you could use to enlighten this conversation. Yeah. Absolutely. But I don't know where you get it. I once emailed Hawkeye, actually. Mm. I said, where can I get an archive of all your data? I mm. want to know, like net clearance, mm. spin rate. I remember they showed once they compared Nadal, Federer, and Djokovic forehand and backhand spin rates on their top spin shots mm -hmm. and net clearance because obviously the more the more you spin it the higher you can clear the net by and still land it in right yeah i thought it would be i thought it'd be terrific data to look at and so on but they just said no we don't keep the data couldn't, be keep couldn't, couldn't believe that i think they were just um blowing me off but you could, anyway you could write a whole magazine about the you data could, from that sort of exactly, thing exactly exactly so know, i mean i'm interested to know the percentage of first serves at pro level across the pro um, you know, arena, whether they are 
distinctly better than like a good amateur, for instance? Does a pro always try and push the limits of their first serve all the time? So mm. in other words, is the average pro serve 30% in compared to a amateur that's just trying to get it in? Mm. You know, it's a very interesting dynamic. I mean, so there, there's, yeah. there are people who probably study that for a living. Yeah. Because they've got jobs in tennis and analytics. Mm. And if I'm playing, let's say I'm playing Nick Kyrgios now at the US Open, mm. I want to know what his habits are. I want to know in the deuce court when he's under pressure at deuce or 30, 30 all, where is he most likely to serve? Yes. And you'll find players have tendencies. Like I know Nadal goes on the ad side, he puts it wide onto the backhand of a right-handed player. It's one of mm-hmm. the things that has made him strong. But then how often do they go down the tee mm. on a big point because it's variety? Mm. So. When they prepare to play one another, there's no doubt they look at that. Yeah, I mean, I know rugby better than tennis, and that's what that's what teams do all the time. They mm. will study patterns of play of their opposition. They'll say that from this situation, more than three quarters of the time, this is what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Tennis will be the same, but it seems to me like a hidden world that no one outside of the the sort of inner sanctum knows about. Mm. Which seems well, look, a shame. I, I guess for those of you that listen to this podcast, there must be somebody in the game of tennis that might have access to those sort of stats. So if you are listening to this, fact, and Robbie you have, Koenig, Robbie Koenig, yeah, South African, is a, good player. He follows us on Twitter. Yeah. So Robbie, if you're listening to this, come, Robbie's a commentator. Help us out <laughs> with data. I actually once played tennis with Robbie Koenig, yeah. so I know him How'd well. That guy. Uh, he, he beat me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. But yeah, I mean, if you if you are listening to this and you are involved in the game of tennis and if Robbie Koenig's listening to this, then, you know, let us know where we can get stats like this because we've been asked to do a podcast on the stats around tennis because it's a big sport and mm. obviously fascinating to see how, how I, things are judged. Just, just remembered, I remember once seeing at a conference a poster presentation on tennis and the mm. guy had analysed the shot length as a function of the temperature. And he found that the hotter it gets, the shorter the not the shot length. The shorter, the hotter it gets, the shorter the rally gets. Yes. Even even in the first two or three games of the match, so it's not as though the players get hot and tired and then start making mistakes. They mm. actually change the way they play depending on the temperature. Well, they're probably going for more winners. Exactly, because mm. you don't want drawn out 10, 12, 15 yeah. shot rallies. Yeah. And so, so that, I, I remember seeing that and saying, well, this is an example of pacing strategy in yeah, tennis. Absolutely. And so that's like, I mean, that's basic stuff. Mm. Quite insightful. Yeah. So anyway. Okay, well, just... we'll have to find somebody, an expert then. Yeah. What else have you got up okay. that uh, caught my eye sleeve? But there's always a few things, in fact. And what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to message them to you as they happen. Because <laughs> at least five times in the last week, I thought, oh, that's interesting. And then we I We have forgo- a very active WhatsApp conversations. And now, and now I've forgotten them. Anyways, Hans Christian Smedsrud has sent a message in on Patreon. And thanks again to all our patrons. We really do appreciate your pledges and your involvement and your discussions. Again, if you want to join us, go to patreon.com, look for the Science of Sport podcast, and you can choose to make a pledge. There are three different tiers, but you can pick any tier you'd like or amount. And then in response, you can submit these things and we'll try and discuss them. So Hans did that. He says, uh, did you watch the Golden Trail World Series last weekend? This was a while back. It's a series of mountain races about 40 k's in length all over the world. The athletes that compete here seem to be racing a lot more than road runners. So Kipchoge maybe runs two to three marathons a year, but these guys and girls run an equivalent of a marathon two to three times each month. Mm-hmm. What we tend to see is that some athletes do really well and then they crash and burn. Some manage to keep it up for years. My question is, are mountain ultra trail runners competing too frequently or are road runners underestimating how often they can compete? 
Can so I this, take a dig at this? So you certainly can. <laughs> and I, yeah, it'll be interesting to hear. And then the reason that this one caught my eye, recalled my eye, because I'd already replied to Hans Christian in writing on Patreon. Mm-hmm. But then it caught my eye this past weekend because at the very on the very same well weekend as our comrades was the Ultra Trail Mont Blanc. Yeah. And the winner of that race on the men's side was Killian Zorne, who a couple of weeks before in mid July had won a hundred mile race in the US in a record time. So I thought, well, Hans Christian's actually, this is a classic illustration of a guy doing 200 mile races a month apart and winning them both in course records. Yep. So what's going on there? You tell me, go for it. So I've got two theories. I think trail running is a lot less impactful than uh, road running. I think when you run a hard road race, you're definitely doing a lot more muscle damage than you would do on a trail where you tend to be running on softer surfaces. Mm -hmm. And I also think that there's less, um, I think there's probably less competition in trail running compared to marathon racing where there is probably 10, 15 athletes within 1% of each other. Whereas I think on the trail, those gaps are bigger and the depth isn't so much. So the good runners can run more often and still be successful. So in a nutshell, that's that's mm. that's my theory. Yeah, I, I tend to largely agree, and especially on the first one, it's not just the softer surface, it's the slower speed of contraction of the mm. muscles, and the consequence of that is that the loading on the joints is way lower when you're running on a trail race compared to, even, even considering the fact that they're doing these 20, 30% uh, downhill mm-hmm. segments. You know, this, this um, past weekend, as I mentioned, you had these two races, and in fact, the 100k champs was also on. So yes, that's a big, true. Big ultra marathon weekend. weekend. But this is the this is the mile pace from the from the races. Comrades, the winning men's time, 5:55 a mile. Okay, yeah, which can, was 3:40 per kilometer. Right. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hadn't done that conversion. Well, I knew the it, so I didn't do the, the conversion. The 100k <laughs> championships was basically six minute miles, so 3:45 ish. And the women, by the way, just to throw it in there, was, was the average woman's pace was 4:12 per kilometer. I don't right. know what that is in miles. 6, 6:46. There you go. In front of me here. Right. Um, and then the Ultra Trail Mont Blanc is 11 minutes, 10 seconds for the men and 13.06 for the women per mile. So you can see the pace is, is considerably slower. Mm-hmm. And the, the running speed determines, obviously, the angular velocity of, around the joints, determines the impact forces. And so the degree of damage and fatigue induced will, will be different. Mm-hmm. I was going to say lower, but I'm going to rather say different. Is it also now, fair to say that the repetitive nature of running on a road, so if you're running on yes. a road, you're running on a flat surface where the, the impact is the same continually, where mm. on a trail, you're constantly moving the impact zone because you're running right. on rocks and sand and that sort of thing. And not just that, this, also the gradient changes load, mm. the posterior muscles, then the anterior, and then the calves are working when you're going up a hill, and the quads are working down the hill. So, because you, you're trying to decelerate, so you, you probably do spread the love, as it were, mm. a little bit differently. And so, so I've not seen anyone quantify. I, I meant to look, and I didn't have the opportunity to do that. The the relative difference in damage and recovery after a trail run compared to a comrade. Yeah, I did find, and and incidentally, the Ultra Trail Mont Blanc is to research the same thing Comrades is to research on the road in the sense that it's probably the most studied ultra event. You know, Comrades, we'll talk in a moment about research studies that have been done there. Mm-hmm. Um, ultra Trail Mont Blanc's the same. And there's a French researcher called Guillaume Millet who's done, probably he's the world he's the world authority on, on ultra research and mm-hmm. science. And there's a paper now, goes back a few years, Neuromuscular Consequences of an Extreme Mountain Ultramarathon. 
i.e. Ultra Trail Mont Blanc. Mm -hmm. And what they did is they got a bunch of these guys to come in and be tested before and immediately after running the race. And then not only immediately after, they also tested them a couple days up to two weeks after. Mm -hmm. And they do these muscle function tests. And sure enough, not surprisingly, when you test a guy just after the race compared to the beginning, their muscle function is nowhere. <laughs> yeah. Like 30, 40% down on what we call activation percentage. So if I ask you, activate your muscle as hard as you can, you can produce a certain force and it's all coming from your brain. Mm -hmm. With fatigue of having done Ultra Trail Mont Blanc, those individuals can't activate the muscle anymore. Their activation has gone down by 40%. So the muscle is weaker, yes. By almost half. But it's weaker as a consequence of the brain actually not being able to recruit the muscle that it did in the beginning, right? Okay. So what they do is they basically superimpose an electrical stimulus onto the muscle. So now I'm stimulating and someone else is doing it for me onto the muscle. Make sense? Why do you say it's the brain? I mean, I was thinking it was the, the, literally the muscle's no, fatigue. It's, it's both. So, so in this study, and, and this has been used before, is they measure something called an activation percentage. So what happens is, I, I, let's say I'm fresh before the race, day mm -hmm. before, and I'm producing force in my quads so on a knee 10 extension. out of 10. And that's my 10 out of 10, and you're measuring the torque or the force, but you're also measuring while I'm contracting my muscle, you are stimulating me, basically electrocuting my muscle at the same time. And if I'm activating my muscle maximally, the addition of external stimulus doesn't increase my muscle force much. That makes sense, right? Yeah. Because I'm already, I'm already getting You're all already of it 100%. Out there. Yeah. 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 What they then do is you do that at the end of the race after the 167Ks of mountain running. And what you find is that that electrical stimulation can increase the force. What does that tell you? It tells In other you, words, it's not, it's not the muscle, it's the brain. It's not the muscle only. It's not the muscle it's only. It's a contribution yes. from right. the brain. So that's what they find. They find huh. that the knee extensors, so your quads, the voluntary activation immediately after the race is 20% down, 19% to be precise. In other words, compared to the start. In other words, I'm activating as hard as I can, but someone else who adds, acts almost as a second brain yeah. <laughs> and electrocutes my muscle. I've had this done. It's not pleasant. Yeah. Um, it's like a sh it's basically like putting your finger on the mains of your house. That's what yeah, it feels yeah. like. <laughs> that causes more force than I can generate by myself, which tells you the muscle had the capacity but I couldn't get to it. Does it make sense? Uh, I mean, how do you explain that? I mean, it's, why well, would the brain the, stop the muscle from doing its, its maximum? It's, it's protection by the brain because mm. the muscle's damaged and there's chemicals and there's literal <laughs> structural damage in the muscle. And the, the brain says, I'm actually not going to do this any longer. So I'm going to actually so it's a put governor a, of sorts. Exactly that, yeah. Mm. So this is... But then at the same time, the actual force production is down by 35 40%. Mm. So the, the overall picture is that your muscle function is way down and it's down for two reasons. One is the brain and two is the muscle. So both things are changing. Makes sense, right? Yeah. yeah. And so, so anyway, the reason I brought that up is because this study then, they track them over the course of the next two weeks, up to 16 days. And sure enough, after 16 days, everything's back to normal. The force, the activation percentage. In fact, the activation percentage comes back very quickly within three to five days. We are able to once again activate all our muscle. But, I mean, you've done comrades, right? Like, you know, mm. that afternoon and the next day, day or two, you can't do your brains. doesn't matter how much you want to jump up or down off a step. You can't do it. 
No, but it's the pain of your legs. Yeah. I mean, it's always hilarious when you see the people oh, yeah, the uh, walking down givings. to the plane on the mm. way home. You can see the comrades' runners mm. quite but easily. At the women's ceremony at the weekend, you must have seen, maybe you were even announcing it, mm. the the woman who came second couldn't get off the podium. Yes. <laughs> Someone had to help lift her off yeah. like, a, like a child, you know, yes. had to be lifted out of a car. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's a combination of the structural damage which, by the way, is measurable. You can measure enzymes like creatine kinase and myoglobin, which is not an enzyme, but it's the... And do they do that with muscle biopsies? Yeah, do they? exactly, yeah. Apparently, those are very unpleasant to go through. <laughs> yeah, not the best. She Not the Why best. Why would anybody volunteer for that? Oh, in the name of science. <laughs> do you, you get do... paid to do that sort of thing you, if you're a volunteer? Usually, yeah. Do when we used that? to do it, used to pay. And there was, mm. a, there was a schedule and said, if you're doing temperature, it's this much. If you're doing... Mm. Lactate blood sampling, it's this, and the, mm. and the, the top of I the I did pops. a bi- muscle biopsy at the end of the Ironman in um, in 2001. I was a volunteer, but I was exhausted afterwards. I didn't feel very much, but people said it would be very painful, and I I think I was so exhausted I just didn't yeah. feel anything. Anethetized from, yes. from effort, <laughs> run as high. But it's a, quite a thick needle they put in. Yeah, it's like a little, it's like an apple core. Yes. That's what it yes. looks like. Yes. If people know. So yeah. they make a little slice, yeah. they put local anesthetic, yes. sterilize, little slice, apple corp. Yeah. Like, yeah, Out you come. No yeah. worries. Yeah. yeah, so so the the metabolic markers are all there for damage, and so is the muscle function impaired, and the activation percentage, i.e., what how much your brain can activate is down. So mm. all these things are happening at the same time, but after after two weeks, everything's back to normal. Now, what would be really interesting is to take the same caliber of athlete from comrades and do that. Yeah, and see whether they do recover as well. Look, I mean, and part of it in response to Hans Christian's question is that the the commercial structure of the road running scene dictates the dictates the, the calendar because mm. no one's going to run a good marathon between June and about August. It's mm. too hot. You see that in championships, mm. you know. It's mm. a quest, the battle of survival. Mm. Similarly, like in the Northern Hemisphere, November, December, January, too cold. Mm. So you have to go to Dubai maybe, which is now why that's kind of like one of the new big fast races. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, they're fall and spring. And that yeah. means you're constrained to a two marathon season because that's where the money is why would you why would you race a slow marathon in the middle of summer when you could just wait and yeah yeah so part of it is that but i do think part of it is that ultra marathoners they just aren't reaching the 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 ceiling of muscle performance because the movements are so slow Mm. so you so the guess challenge if you had to hypothesize what the results of that study would be in the road you would suggest that the recovery period would be longer for those doing ultra marathons like the comrades that yeah. are mainly on the road. Yes, but I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't bank on finding a longer recovery using methods like this. You'd have to test the muscle at the limits of its performance. Mm-hmm. You know, so you'd have to cuz in this study it's like a 1 1 RM 1 rep maximum knee extension, some voluntary activation percentage, some blood values. I wouldn't be surprised if your comrades runner also looks normal at 16 days. What you really want them to then do is a fatiguing time trial at like 18 days and then you mm. see who's impaired. And I think that your your road runners, even a marathon runner in the week after we're coming up now to the season, right? Mm-hmm. It's going to be London, October, uh, London, Berlin, you know, New York, Chicago. I reckon those top, top marathon runners, mm. that two hours and two minutes or two hours, six, 16, 17 for the woman is so demanding because you are at such a high percentage of your mechanical and metabolic and cardiovascular capacity for, for two hours. Mm. That's probably more long term, not damaging, but persistent mm. than a... 20-something hours in in an ultra race. It's interesting because if you can get quantify 
the the ideal quality, the recovery time, you can then start advising people as to when they would suitably recover. Because we, you know, with the stuff we've done in Runners World in the past, there's all sorts of hmm. theories about how long you should recover after a marathon, for instance. There's everything from a week per ten kilometers. You know, right. some people have talked about, and um, some people say you must do it three days per hour that you need to do it. Yes. But that you, it's impossible to do that because every single event, as you say, trail versus road, ten hours on the trail versus ten hours on the road might have a completely different impact on mm. your body and muscles. Mm. Well, you look at World Champs track, eh? Like, it's an 800-meter race. They have two days off before the final. Yeah. No one's running a semi-final on a Friday and a final on a Saturday. Yeah. So an 800-meter race that lasts 1 minute 55 or 1 minute 44 mm. needs two days to recover from, mm. even though it's a, it's a couple of minutes. <laughs> yeah. And so actually, I suspect that the recovery time is inversely proportional to the duration of the exercise which is because of the intensity you know mm. so it's it's directly proportional to intensity mm. and that's not saying the trail runners are getting it easy i mean to do no. 19 hours 50 like journey at the weekend and before that the the, the one he won in the u.s was even longer it was um 20, 21 20, hours yeah. 36 and that's yeah. that's a long long time but I, I think you can recover better that's from the that effort. <laughs> yeah, and that's the winner. And you are right about the gaps, incidentally. I mean, in this race here, 10, one, two, three. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Tenth is 10 hours behind. 10 hours behind. So 10th is 20% wow. behind the winner in this race. So you might suggest that Jornet actually is running well within himself yeah, because possibly. the competition isn't as high amongst those kind of... Possibly. I mean, I mean, who was second and how far was second behind him? Uh, for 40, 15 minutes, give or take. Yeah, 15 so minutes. close-ish. Yeah, over 21 yeah. hours, it's not... It's not that far, but it's no. not its not the same as winning a marathon by 10 seconds. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Which is what will happen yeah. three times in the next four, mm. four marathons. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's an interesting one that Hans Christian asks. And, and you never know how much of it is just tradition, and that's just the way the calendar looks. But I mm. suspect if those top athletes could race more, they would. Yes. I don't, I don't th- and I don't think they can. I, yeah, I mean, as much as we talk about how things are so variable, I mean, do you have a, a ballpark – figure that you could give to people who've run a marathon to suggest how many days they would need to recover. I mean, I'm almost contradicting what we've just said mm. for the last 10 minutes, but is, is there a, a marker you can say after well, 10 days you can resume exercise as normal? Well, I hate to do this, but you have to first you have to define recover, and then you have to ask what you're recovering for. Because if it's to recover to run another marathon, that's mm. very different from recover enough to train like you normally would. Yes. And to train at any level is another further level down, right? So I reckon three to five days after a marathon, you can be back training. Easier. As, as easier. No, easier. No, no, no. Yeah, easier. But not, not where you were at peak. I would say two weeks. Right. Like mm. if you're well trained. You see, that that's the other factor. Yeah. If you're not well trained, then four weeks. <laughs> yeah. But then again, if you're not well trained and you race well within yourself, 
one week. Yes. <laughs> so it's a very it's a very fast moving yeah. and slippery target that you've just drawn on the wall there. Yeah. Um, comrades, I, I reckon. I mean, you know, you race now. What are we in August? Early August was it? No, mm-hmm. it was late August. Late I August. Track no, late August. First of September today, as we record. I mean, your ma- your next marathon, you might want to do something like in South Africa. We've got a culture of marathons October, mm. and it's not going to be a good one. Mm. It's just asking too much, you know. Risk of injury, too high. What if you've run comrades and you want to run a good marathon? Because mm, I think you're gonna have, you're gonna have a week of very little activity after comrades. Mm. Maybe walking, slow jogging a week later. Mm. Then you've got to rebuild, but not do too much intensity work. And then you've got to add the intensity on towards the end. So mm. I reckon it's like a six week to eight week proposition just to get back to normal. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, just to maybe finish off the discussion when we talk about trail versus road, I know that a lot of people, uh, particularly in Cape Town, trail is a very trendy thing to do. And a lot of people who did road racing have gone onto the trail. And uh, sort of my hypothesis around that is most of the people who have done that, when you talk to them about how their running has changed, they will say that they are less injured when they're on the trail, even though there is more chance of being injured on the trail by twisting an ankle or something like mm, that. Different injury. It's a difference. It's not a repetitive mm, strain injury. Exactly. And I think it's something to do with, we talk about proprioception and that sort of thing, where once your body can adapt and, and, and is forced to adapt continually on a trail, it's not that repetitive same foot land on a, mm-hmm. on a bit of hard tarmac with bad camber, all that sort of thing. You've got this continuous movement of the leg. And it, it feeds into maybe what, what we're going to talk a bit about today, talking about how the human body, to some extent, is quite well developed in terms of running in a trail, mm. non-tar sort of space. We are, we're quite, our bodies are able to be quite adaptive to different terrains, yes. whereas, whereas it's easier to run the road, but actually there's a good advice to suggest if you're a runner, you need to mix it up with a bit of trail because trail gives you strength. Roads potentially gives you a bit of speed, and maybe mm. mixing those two things up, even if you're a road runner, is quite a good thing to do. Yeah, and I think it's partly again the variation in terrain and surface and and loading on the joint, and the speed with which you load the joints. I mean, even a even a sort of middle of the pack marathon and like a three hour guy is actually quite good. I suppose is mm. a four minute a k guy, training at four twenty four thirty on the road. I suspect that's more likely to cause injury than running five and a half, six minutes on the mountain. Yes. Um, even though it's, the terrain is steeper and there's rocks, as you say, turned ankles, ankle sprains yeah. are more of an issue. But the overuse stuff, the tendinosis and the hamstring injuries and the bone stress injuries, those things are definitely higher, I think, on the road. Mm. Mm. I'm, sure, I'm sure by now, actually, and I'll look this up and again, I'm pop it in the show notes, there's got to be a systematic review on the incidence of injury in trail versus road runners. And I'm sure someone's worked out per thousand kilometers of trail running, the injury risk is X percent of what it is for a thousand kilometers of road running. Yeah. Be nice to know. Yeah. Hard to, hard to measure, but yeah. be good to know. But that's what I would yeah. think. I would agree. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Um, we You shared a link with me just in the preview to this podcast. We were talking about Let's Run doing a sort of summary of the ultra distance events. And they named the, uh, I think it was Ultra Trail Mont Blanc, the Comrades Marathon, the Western States 100 Miler as the three big ultras in the world, um, which I thought was quite an interesting uh, insight into ultras. And I have to say, I absolutely agree with them mm. on that. I think that's a great combination. I, I think 
there are obviously many competitors and many different races that could vie for that. But in terms of true ultra um, spirit and history and pedigree, those events, I would I would agree with the Let's Run.com people in suggesting those are the, the three big ones in the world of ultra distance running. Yeah, so they called it the Triple Crown. Yeah. And uh, it was in 2019, actually, that they did this for the first time. And honestly, it's quite a ama- like they could not be more positive about the comrades. It is such a powerful brand. Remember, yeah. these are American guys. <laughs> yeah. In South Africa, it's the same. I know Alana Mayer, who some of you may know, was an Olympic medalist in the 10K from Barcelona, coming up to 30 years reunion. Actually, mm-hmm. that in fact, I saw her yesterday, and she's flying over there to have a reunion with Gerardo Tulu from oh, the wow. iconic race. Amazing. And she often makes the joke. She says she's a runner, but in South Africa, no one respects her running <laughs> because she hasn't done the comrades. That's right. So she says people will say to you, she says I'm a runner. They say, have you done com- how many comrades you done? None. Okay, well then, no, <laughs> not a runner. That's, so, <laughs> and that's no lie here in South Africa. It's I mean, in Zola, but Peterson ran the race. Um, I think good yeah, ten years she ago. Joked. She, now she's a runner. Now, now she was. She said, mm. "Yeah, now people see me as a runner." Exactly. In fact, she ran the race with the famed ultra distance athlete Bruce Fordyce. He's won the comrades nine times, and they ran together in this beautiful scene of Zola Bud and Bruce Fordyce at the finish, with him giving her a kiss and a hug. And but you're right, she absolutely mm. it tongue in cheek. Said, well, finally, I'm a runner. <laughs> mm. And she did it in because I know someone will wonder. She did it in shoes for what it's worth. Yes, yeah, she did. And she ran a good time. Yeah. And she ran a so, sub nine. So in, in the, in the Let's Run write up, they say, yeah, what Comrades has going for it? Just about everything. That's what they say. Everything mm. going for it. Most prize money, yes. Largest field, yes. Oldest race in the world, yes. Easy access for a pro, yes. Live television cover, yes. Okay. It could be better. <laughs> the commentary, especially <laughs> variety, yes, because they go one year up, one year down. And then when they say what's not to like a guy, comrades, nothing. They say there's no downside to comrades. There's no, there's nothing about it. Whereas the, the other two in the Triple Crown are the Western States Endurance Run, it's at 100 mile in the US, yep. and Ultra Trail Mont Blanc, both of which have got certain things about them. Which are totally different events from completely comrades. Completely different. I mean, they are. It's so. Yes, yeah, so it's it might a, be the it's triple a, crown, a, but they're three different events for three different athletes. Mm. Mm. So I mean, I hope I hope that comrades can recover from whatever issues it might have at the moment because it's is such a powerful brand, really. It's a, well, I mean, just just you just touched on a, um, on an issue around the comrades marathon. It's probably a very localized issue in terms of South Africa, but it does show you potentially where events are going. And the comrades, by their own admittance, have struggled in the last few years. First of all, to find decent sponsors um, because they didn't have two years of racing financially that put them in a bit of a hole so this year that's why they were forced to increase the entry fees and they're still struggling to find the sponsors and what they're hoping is that the excitement from this year will lead to more sponsors for next year and help them recover from the race but the only criticism and and having covered the race literally in some shape or form for 30 odd years now is that the only criticism I would say of comrades is that they they kind of need to get with the, the current program um, for want of a better phrase in that they, it's mainly a much older group of runners that do that race. They're not necessarily attracting a lot of young athletes into that race because it's seen as a bit of a, a race that people do when they're sort of when they've lost their speed, they then go the distance, which we'll talk a little bit about as well. Mm. And so the audience every year seems to get older. That that mid, that sort of average age, you know, is, is 46, 47 years of age, which is very, very high if you consider 10K races here in South Africa and 21Ks where the average age would probably be under 30. Mm. So Comrades has got a bit of a job to do in terms of making itself a bit more current. Mm. Um, I think on the social media and the marketing side, it needs a bit of a revamp. Um, as much as it's got unbelievable equity in the brand, I think it still needs to kind of up its game. I look at some of the social media they did over the weekend. It's literally 
there's nothing happening on that side, whereas most of the big brands in running marathons in New York, London, those channels are very, very active and very current and very cool. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, as much as um, events like Conrad's have an, an amazing heritage, I think what we see around aspiration, um, Conrad's is pushed itself as almost a people's race for the last few years, whereas I think they should be pushing it as a race that is highly aspirational. It shouldn't be a race that anybody can do mm. because it's 90 kilometers. You must be a very good athlete with a lot of bravery and a lot of uh, fuss bait in mm. South African terms, which is, you know, need to knuckle grit. down grit. Grit, yeah. grit is, a, is a thing that you need for comrades. And I think that's what they must focus on to make it that. Um, so that's just my little my little uh, two cents on the comrade situation. It's for interesting because like on the broadcast side, and again, I hope the listeners can bear with us because this is South African centric. But yeah. It used to be on our national sort of free-to-air broadcast, and this was the first year they put it on the paid, you know, package, like yeah. the equivalent of Sky for England or the cable stations in the U.S., and, and the, they were pretty aggressive. I don't know if you watched yeah. much Supersport, that's our channel, in the, in the last week before the race, but there was a lot going on, adverts and so on yeah. and snippets and so forth. So and they've had reruns of helps, it. And- but it is... That is a that is an early two thousands mindset around media, right? It's mm. all television based. They need to put same the same emphasis on their social stuff. That was the impression I got. For sure. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, it's a it's it's a it's a it's a brand that almost feels like it's got it's so much inertia mm. that you could it would be hard to mess it up. But yeah, but it, it's but, possible. Uh, <laughs> I think once you're in a situation where your audience is not the audience that potentially sponsors are want to be involved in, or sponsors don't see a return on investment by being involved, the amount of money that it costs to put on a conference marathon is enormous. Mm. And uh, having spoken to the race director, he was saying that you know the cost of a, a runner um, is X, and even with the increase in the entry fees and sponsorship and all sorts of additional things, they are still not covering the cost of the runner at the mm. moment. And that cost is fairly high um, because you've really got to be able to, that's what you've got to look at. You can look at your cost per runner. Now, Conrad's Marathon, you say, how can a race with so much heritage be under threat? I think if they hadn't run the race this year and Bruce Fordyce, the, the nine-time winner, actually suggested this in some of the articles building up to the race, he said, if it hadn't happened this year, there was a threat that that would be the end of the Conrad's Marathon. Which is, um, I don't think that's far off, far off the mark. So Jeez, wow. it was tough, tough times for them. It's crazy because when you watch it, you think this thing's in good health. Yeah, you do. You know, the, the TV broadcast presents to it, to mm. the world a completely different picture. Yeah. I only know about some of the issues because of you. But yeah. I mean, yeah, let's hope that they can ask the right people to take. Um, some responsibility to save that. Absolutely. So let's move on to uh, some of the the interesting um, sort of conversations around um, ultra distances. Now, Ross, I know you've been involved in a couple of uh, research projects Mm. at at ultra distance events. And I think in South Africa, we've got the Ironman. We've got, uh, we've had Ironman in South Africa for quite some, quite some years. We've got the Two Oceans, which is a a 56 kilometer, which is what, 40 miles? eh? uh, 30 is 48, so 34, 35 miles. 35 miles. Mm. And then um, we've got some, we've also, I mean, amazingly in South Africa, we've got the biggest swim in the world, which is the Midmar Mile. I think the most number of people do that um, in the world. We've got the biggest time soccer to in the race. So in South Africa, we're quite proud of our endurance heritage. But races like Conrad's and Two Oceans, they're they're almost like the perfect environment for people like yourself to go in and do research studies, aren't they? Yeah, any, you know, any endurance thing, like even this Ultra Trail Mont Blanc, and I mentioned this Millet study where they get a a dozen people. Mm. I mean, we got 
24,000 candidate subjects. <laughs> okay, and they don't all start, but even if you get, what was it this year? Did you say 11,000? 11,700 finishes. I, I remember 15 years ago being at Durban for Comrades and it was a research study and we had 13 odd thousand finishes that year. Yeah. I mean, if you can sample even 1% of them, the, I mean, you're doing a study that most places in the world will take a decade to get done. You can do it every year. What, because so, the body's being pushed to quite an extreme Because there's so many people doing it. Yeah. Um, and yes, and pushing it to such an extreme level. So, I mean, we couldn't have a conversation about comrades without invoking two or three studies. Yeah. Dehydration, cardiac issues, muscle damage, pacing, injuries. I mean, you just there's so many things. Because the moment you test the physiology to the extent that a comrades or any other race does, mm. you're going to have unlimited questions that you try and answer and so mm. we're very lucky because then obviously people like Tim Noakes have said we can't let this opportunity go to waste and that's why these races are studied so well is because he worked hard to make it a priority to let research happen in those races you know so so what sort of studies have happened well hydration was the big one you know Tim mm. Noakes back I mean 30 years now was one of the first people to identify what happens when humans overdrink water and a woman was pulled from the race in the 1980s, I think it was, suffering from confusion. She didn't recognize her husband at the side of the road, and that was the thing that caused him to yank her off. She went to hospital, and he does this presentation where he shows us an X-ray of her lungs, and it's just it, it's just a storm of white <laughs> fluid in the lungs. And sure. so what had happened there is she's drinking so much liquid that she ends up basically causing a condition called pulmonary edema, where you get fluid accumulation in the lungs. One of the consequences of a condition called hyponatremia, too mm -hmm. low sodium. Yeah, You've, you know this. Everyone yep. in South Africa knows this. Yeah. Again, it's good thanks, to explain to, it though. thanks to comrades and Tim mm -hmm. Noakes. Mm -hmm. So we have a normal set point for our sodium levels in our blood. It's 140 millimolar. That's the concentration. When you sweat and lose fluid and salt, you lose disproportionately more fluid than you do salt. Yeah. The consequence is that your sodium levels go up. So by the time you finish, comrades, and we know this because these are the studies like that I was involved in. And we talk about then. sodium levels. Those are the sodium levels in your, in your plasma. In your plasma, yeah. your blood plasma. Plasma right. sodium levels. Right. Which is important because that controls the movement of fluid in and out of spaces in the body, into the cell or out of the cell. So that is the osmotic Correct. One of, one of those cells being brain tissue. So obviously what you don't want is fluid into the brain because it's got nowhere to go. So in other words, because there's a lot of sodium in your blood plasma, you're getting water surging in to try and make up and balance that sodium, is that? Uh, well, because you, you've got the very low sodium concentration now in the plasma, that fluid is going to move out of the plasma and into the cell. Right. And when it goes into the tissues, you get swollen and bloated. You can see that on people sometimes. If it goes into the brain, it's a whole different story. <laughs> so you can actually have a stroke. It's fatal, yeah. You really? get what's called cerebral edema, fluid in the brain. And that <laughs> can be fatal and often is fatal. Kills far more people than dehydration ever will. Well, that was my next question. People always talk about dehydration. I mean, yeah. I suggested so, hyponatremia is more fatal than people are amazed by that. They yeah, say that can't you be the can, case. You can almost, mm. in fact, I don't know of a single documented verified death as a result of dehydration yeah. in a sports event. Yeah. yeah, if you get if you get stranded in Death Valley and you've got to walk five days out, you chances are you're not making it because of fluid yes. <laughs> restriction or, or in inaccessibility. But comrades, you've got water table every twenty minutes. 
yeah. 2K, right? I mean, it's like, what's it now? Two and a half K? Something like that, yeah. You, you're in far more la- far more danger of over-drinking than under. Right. And Comrades was the first race, really, that showed that because it was being researched and the case was identified at Comrades, which was the first documented case of low sodium caused by fluid overload. And <laughs> so you see the problem is even if you drink sports drinks, those sports drinks are hypotonic, low tonic, low concentration relative to your plasma. Mm-hmm. So you can drink a sports drink that you think has got sodium in it, but you're still diluting your, your blood. Mm. You know, it's like it's like having a bucket with 10 parts water, one part salt, and then adding a teaspoon with one part water, one t- hundredth of part salt. You know yeah. what I mean? You're going to dilute that bucket of water more. Yeah. So yes, yeah, so hyponatremia was a big one. And I remember in two, I oh, forget the year, let me not guess. Um, we were in the medical tent, and Tim, <laughs> Tim's theory was that because you see what happens. This is, this is Professor Tim yeah. Noakes. Yeah, you yeah. see what happens now around he's the just world. To gi- just to give our listeners a bit of background on him, he's the author of a very famous book and among right. many other books called "The Law of Running," which was kind of seen as the the Bible of running. And he's run, he's done many. The book on water, I think, was called "Water Logged." Water Logged, yeah, yeah. Um, which talks about that. So, a, a person that's been very much celebrated in the world of endurance, um, yes. running for many years. Yeah, and it was comrades. Tim was Tim was a comrades runner. He did yeah. loads of these races, and and a good comrades good, runner too. Good friends with Fordyce, and I mean they were the pioneers. You know, mm. they did all this stuff in the eighties, and then it became textbook knowledge by the nineties. And we were in the tent because what what happens around the world is a runner collapses or needs medical care after the finish line. Mm which is different from if a runner collapses on the course, which we might yet get to in this discussion. But let's say they, they finish the race and they feel terribly ill. They come to the medical tent. The typical solution for that athlete is to put a drip in them and to infuse intravenous saline. Now, the problem with that is that similarly, if that athlete has overconsumed fluid and you then put more saline in, you can actually accelerate their deterioration because they're already overloaded with it. And so in actual fact, you want to know the sodium level. Or if you can't measure the sodium, you at least want to know their body weight. Because some people, it amazes you to know, some people will finish 11 hours of exercise 90 kilometers later, heavier than when they started. Because for every every liter of sweat that they've lost, they've ingested one and a half liters of sports drink, water, and Coke. And so they finish the race three to five kilograms heavier than at the start. And when you see that, you should be thinking, this is a problem. And if I give this person saline, I'm going to make them potentially worse. So that was the one study we did. We basically weighed people at the finish line and we we tried to then compare it to their pre-noted weight because they would write on their bibs what their weight was. Ideally, you'd want to weigh everyone, but how do you do that in (laughs) 16,000 people at the start, right? So, yeah. yeah. And then then we tried different methods, you know, because Tim's theory was that if you, you don't need a drip, you can actually just drink a salty liquid and you'd be fine. That went down like a lead balloon. Because, because after 11 hours, you give someone a salty liquid, they take one sip and they throw up. Yeah. They do not want to see anything more, even if, they, even if that's the solution. Mm. So, I mean, we were prescribing two liters of fluid to be drunk by some people. Oof. And they were like, no. And it's a saline, which is not Yeah, and they're saying, not happening, mate. Just let, mm. can I just leave? Mm. Yeah, so it was interesting. And I remember the year we were there, we had one, every 130th runner came into the tent. That was the, that was the prevalence of medical care. 
It was just under 1%. So we had 13,000 finishers, and I remember there were like 104 admissions to the medical tent. Mm. And like with the finishers, almost all coming in the last hour, half of them, same thing in the medical tent. In the first, in the first f- sort of eight, nine hours of the race, you get one medical admission per four, 500 runners. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the last hour, it's basically one every 50 runners is, is mm. coming into the medical tent. So well, this year all, it was 76 people that were admitted oh, to the medical right. tent. Yeah. No, they got their stats. They got their stats. So um, that's less than normal. See, yeah, but less runners than normal. Well, yeah, I suppose it's about the same lower, as, it'll be a slightly lower prevalence slightly lower because the conditions yeah. were good. Conditions were very the, good, very cool. I remember when we were there, it was hot. Yeah. It was a warm day. And yeah. there's, you know, people come into the tent and it's nausea. I think a lot of it is is a combination, actually interesting, of motion sickness mm. from up and down, and then the gastrointestinal issues. They get stomach issues. Jim Walmsley, for instance, at the weekend, had a big lead in Ultra Trail Mont Blanc, and then developed stomach problems. Couldn't eat, couldn't drink anymore, lost that lead, and then some. Ended mm. up fourth. Same thing happens to comrades runners, is after six, seven, eight hours, your tolerance for food and fluid just goes right down. And then you can't drink and eat, so you get hypoglycemia on top of nausea, <laughs> which yeah. makes you more nauseous. So so there's a spiral that an ultra runner knows all about, and that's one of the main that's probably the main thing that puts them in the medical tent, actually. Then mm. there's nothing really wrong with them. They just need a bit of TLC and a lie down, and then they're good to go half an hour later. Yeah. But sometimes you get cases where there's a medical emergency and the most common of those is low blood sodium because of over drinking during the course of the race relative to sweat rate. So that's the key is if you drink more than your thirst, you're in danger. Mm. Yeah. What was the, I know that when Tim Noakes was doing very involved in the Comrades Marathon, uh, if athletes collapsed on the finishing line, his his protocol was to literally put their feet up. Yeah. So why, why was that? So when you see an athlete collapse after they stop running, yes, it's the act of stopping that causes the collapse. That's the hypothesis, right? Right. Because if there was a problem that caused would, would cause them to collapse for some medical reason, it won't often, not always, but it won't often wait until you stop before it manifests. <laughs> yes. So if you if you stop, then collapse. The theory is that what happens is, obviously now while you've been running, so much of your blood has had to been redirected to your legs where your muscles need it because mm-hmm. it's carrying oxygen and it's removing waste products and it's carrying oxygen and fuel and it's removing the waste products, right? Mm. When you stop running, the return of that blood to your heart goes down because muscle contraction pumps the blood back up you know your legs pump the blood to your heart and your heart then pumps the blood to your legs right (laughs) so it's almost like a two pump system system, Mm. the moment you stop one of those pumps no longer does anything the legs and and you get venous pooling which is compounded on a hot day because other blood has had to go to the skin because that's how you lose heat so now you've got a large reservoir of blood at the skin you've got some blood in the muscle and it's not coming back to the heart the result is blood pressure falls and you fall <laughs> ah, okay and so then the treatment is if you just lie the person down with their legs elevated gravity now starts to bring the blood back the blood pressure is restored and they're good to go within five to ten minutes and it wow. works very well so when you have post-exercise collapse that's the most common reason not not only so you don't want to be trivial about it mm. but that's usually the reason and would that apply to things like cycling, for instance? Anything where your muscles have been used for a, where the leg muscles have been used, you suddenly stop. If you feel, mm. I've often felt a bit lightheaded yes. after a, a ride. It, it literally is because suddenly the one pump has gone for a bit. Yeah, so that lightheadedness is most often blood pressure. Second mm. most often will be blood sugar. 
Yeah. So those are the reasons. So that's always tell my wife when I get back from a ride, I need to put my feet up, and she says, "No, I've got to do some <laughs> DIY." <laughs> yeah, just don't tell, just do it. Just do it. Um, yeah. So that's that's the most common reason, and mm. um, yeah, I think it's probably mis- misdiagnosed. You know, collapse. It's got to be a medical emergency. More often than not, it's not. Yeah. But you also still need some kind of a triage system, you know, mm. because if the person, you and you can tell. I mean, you know, if someone's because what are the other causes? It's cardiac. Yeah. It's heat stroke. It's potentially this hyponatremia that we've mentioned. And you've got to be able to make that distinction quite quickly. Mm. But 99% of the time, it's it's a blood pressure issue. That's not really a problem. It just needs, as I say, a bit of gravity and support mm. of the blood, and you're good to go in 10, 15 minutes. It always looks quite dramatic, doesn't it? Because you often see comrades, mm. people collapsing across the line. Yeah. And they stand Look, there I mean, for a second, and then they're on the ground. Part of it is psychological and emotional mm. as well. It's like, I, I, I couldn't afford to do this for 11 hours and 46 minutes. Now I can, yeah. so I will. Yeah, I'm just going <laughs> um, to lie here for a bit. I'm just going to have a little sit down <laughs> and lie down, you know. So so part of it is emotional and psych- it's conscious choice. But mm. yeah, it, a lot of it's just, it's hypotension, you know. It's um, mm. yeah. orthostatic hypertension. So, very sadly, at this year's Comrades Marathon, there were two reported deaths at the uh, at the Comrades. And uh, I know, Ross, you've done a couple of interviews this week um, here in South Africa talking a little bit about that. The media love the story um, because it's what everybody wants to know. And I know that having been part of the media in the past, back in the newspaper days, the first thing that you would get asked by your editors to say, has anybody died at the Comrades? Because that's always going to be the story that uh, will be on the front page. And uh, when I was in Durban... Uh, um, yeah, the last couple of days, uh, post Comrades Marathon, um, that that was what was full in the front page of the newspapers. Mm. I, th- I think what happens in that situation, you suddenly get people saying running is bad for you. Comrades kill these people. How common is this in sport and running? And is running the culprit? Yeah. So how common? I mean, that's position determines perspective mm. to some extent. So too common. <laughs> But also, luckily, yes. not very common, depending on which side of the divide you start on. Mm. Uh, there were two. Were there two this year, right? Two this I, year I saw, so far, and I know there's a couple of people who are still in ICU at really? hospital. So that's a lot. Yeah, then. Relatively bad. speaking, that's high. Yeah, that is. You high. don't often have a death at the comrades. Very sad. So there is a law, and this is going to sound somewhat uh, like detached from like humanity. <laughs> there is a there's this concept of like law of large numbers. You know, if you if you monitored randomly. 20-odd thousand people on any given day, probably every year or two, one of those 20,000 would would die on that day. Um, But then what happens here on top of that is that you've got them doing exercise. And exercise is the trigger for whatever underlying pathology may have been there Mm. to cause that thing to happen. So it's incredibly sad and startling because this person, these people have died in the act of doing something that is supposed to be healthier. Yeah. So we say, well... Have we got this wrong? And and that's why it causes so much um, consternation and controversy. Now, the truth is we haven't got it wrong because the group of people who run comrades and the group of people who exercise are still overall much less likely to have cardiac events and death or any other complications than a group that doesn't do any exercise and run. Mm-hmm. So over the course of a year, over the course of 10 years, over the course of a lifetime, the, their risk collectively is way lower than if they didn't exercise. But if there is an underlying pathology there, and that can take a few different forms, then the act of exercise and the stress of exercise is the thing that brings it out. And very sadly, a lot of the time, you know, it's called it's called SUD, sudden unexplained death. Mm. It's unexplained. Mm. 
Mm. They say that they, they, they use a term called the sentinel event. You know, the thing that first reveals the problem is the death. It's mm. a terrible situation because no one, had, no one saw it coming. The first sign of the problem, whether it's a, a problem in the cardiac um, circulation, you know, you get the coronary artery, you get coronary artery diseases. Mm. That's In older runners, that's probably the most common one is coronary artery disease that's undiagnosed. And then you get blood flow issues. You also get structural abnormalities of the coronary arteries. You get cardiomyopathies where the heart muscle becomes thick. In younger people, that's the most common one. Ryan Shea in 2008 collapsed and died in the New York um, Olympic trials for the US marathon team. Very famous, he was in his 20s. Elite athletes, it can happen. David Epstein tells a story in his books of a college teammate of his who collapsed and died in a training session for the same reason. Mm. So those are some of the the structural or the pathologies, and th- those are there undetected until the moment of these these tragic things happen. Now, how common are they? Well, it depends. In young athletes, they say between one in fifty and one in a hundred thousand people have those. So every three years at Comrades, you might have one person with that condition. And then is the comrades going to be the thing that on that day, you know, mm. that's unfortunately one way. The yeah. other thing is illness. Um, well, yeah, I was going to say, how much of an effect do you think COVID yeah. would have? Because I actually thought that COVID would have a bigger impact this year at the Comrades Marathon because there would have been a lot of people who might have got into that race not knowing they had COVID. Well, when I hear five people, when I hear two deaths and another number in ICU, I feel like maybe it did. Because there is some data that shows, in the one study that was done on it, and you can imagine how hard these are to find, because you've got to have like some capture system to identify these sudden unexplained deaths. Then you've got to get access to those people and their families in a really crappy time, Mm. let's be honest. And then you've got to try and determine something that's not always diagnosable, even on autopsy. Sometimes some of these conditions you cannot even determine on autopsy. Mm. They are completely unexplainable. Mm. So very difficult. But I did see some data that suggests that about 11% of all cardiac arrests and deaths during exercise can be attributed to some kind of viral infection in the months leading up to that event. So that's flu or COVID. Because what happens there is you get inflammation of the heart muscle, myocarditis, Mm. or of the pericardium, which is the the membrane around the heart. Now, COVID has affected, I mean, what, two out of three people easily. Mm. Yep. And we know that COVID causes myocarditis at least at the same rate as the normal flu if not slightly higher. There's controversy about that. You know, young athletes, early on in the pandemic, there were studies coming out showing that even in young college-aged athletes, about not, it was between 0.5 and 1% of all athletes. So that's 1 in 200 to 1 in 100 would develop symptoms of myocarditis. So now let's say you take 20,000 people and they all happen to be runners. At that prevalence of like 1%, I mean, that's going to be 200 200 people at the start of Comrades could have had some kind of myocarditis risk factor. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it could well be. It, it might not necessarily even be COVID-induced. It's flu. Yeah. Let's call it flu or viral infection. So yeah. that could be another thing. I mean, it's just we're speculating now a little mm-hmm. bit, but those are the common ones. And well, then we, the final one is supplement use. There have been cases, the stimulants in supplements. There right. was a very famous case. Claire Squires, I think was the name, in London 20-odd years ago, where her death during the London Marathon was ruled to be the result of taking a supplement that contained caffeine and ephedra. And she was using that, um, and that caused a cardiac 
issue for her mm. young 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 woman 20 odd years old yeah so that, those are the those are the issues it's stimulants underlying pathology and previous viral infection that can cause these issues yeah yeah, very unfortunate and very unfortunate news for comrades because unfortunately it does create that uh, sort of negative publicity that I think is probably a little bit unwarranted as much as it is as much as it is sad. Let's just on to our sort of final subject and we can talk a little bit about some of the physiology. We 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 can touch very briefly on this. I've always been I love the one of the few books that I've read. I'm not a massive book reader and I should be more of a book reader, but Born to Run was yeah. this great book that did an amazing job at talking about how humans are naturally born to run. It talked mm. about the I think of the Tahomura Indians, <laughs> if I remember right. Did I get the name right? I, I don't know. There was a, something like that. When that came out there, there was a YouTube clip going around about and they showed about seven different people pronouncing it seven different ways. Yes. So you've actually Ta- just you've actually just, just memed yourself. I've added, I've added the ninth version yeah. of that. <laughs> but anyway, they run yeah. in they run in sandals and they run naturally and they're able to run huge distances yeah. um, compared to the normal population. And there was lots of theories as to how they do that and that sort of thing. But I mean, we are essentially as human beings through evolution designed mm. to run long distances. If there's any sport that we're good at, long distance running is probably it. Yeah, indeed, and and in fact, it's a, it worked both ways. And there's a paper again. I'll put it in the show notes by Daniel Lieberman, who's kind of like a rock star in the world of evolutionary yep. biology, Harvard-based guy. And it's called uh, "Running and the Evolution of Homo." You know, the genus Homo. Mm-hmm. We're Homo sapiens. Mm-hmm. And basically, his argument is that that we we evolved to run, but we also evolved because we could run. Mm. And so he lists, there's in fact, there's a table in there in which he lists all these structural, because obviously as an anthropologist, he's looking at how we're built. Mm. You know, he's looking at form, you know, the thing architects say, form follows function. Mm. Something like that, I think it is. <laughs> I'm no architect. Well, whatever it is, it sounds fair. fair. When it comes to this And he's doing the same thing. So he's saying, all right, let's look at humans compared to other animals, especially other primates, and recognize that humans run much better than other primates can. We are the only primates that can do endurance running. Yes. We suck at speed. In fact, yeah. if our survival depended on our speed, we'd have been extinct. Yeah. But we can run and we can just keep going and going and going. And, and, sure we, enough, and we're the best at that in the animal we, kingdom, aren't we? Exactly. In terms we, of being able to run. <laughs> and we capitalized on that to, to, to evolve because it meant that we could hunt. And so our hunting method was endurance running. Uh, you know, we had to hide from predators because they could run much faster than us and we'd mm. be eaten every That's time. Why we lived in caves. Yeah, and climbed trees. And hunt. I've watched the crudes a few times. So. And hide, <laughs> and hide at night when they were up and about, and we could then hunt in the day. And that gave us two advantages. One is we could outrun them over long distances, not short. So there's a great video on YouTube, and there've been books. Bernd Heinrich wrote a book called Thermal Warriors, because you see, aside from our running ability, we also had thermoregulatory ability. So those yeah. two things together gave us this advantage. And mm. these sand bushmen, you've seen this clip, I'm sure. I've seen the talk you've done on this, and I've seen this clip. It's yeah. brilliant. And they, and they spot an antelope, right? Kudu, I think it is in the mm. clip. It's a South African antelope with the curly horns. And they'll go, and sure enough, over the first 100 meters, they lose... 80. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, no contest, but they just keep plugging away. It's the classic tortoise and hare. And the kudu keeps running away and they keep chasing him. And, they go, and this is now happening at 10 o'clock in the morning. It's 35 degrees, 100 Fahrenheit, if you wish. And they just keep going and going for hours and hours and hours. I don't know what the pace is. It's probably 10 minute miles. Mm. It's not, it's not going to shoot the lights out, but it's, it's enough. And eventually what happens is the human doesn't overheat and the kudu does. Mm. And at that point, that animal fails because its brain says, I can't, it's life or death, but the brain says no. And then they can make an easy kill. They literally 
walk up to it. They literally walk up to it or stand two meters away from it. And then the other thing we have is the ability to throw. And that was the evolution of the shoulder mm. was instrumental in our evolution because now we could kill from distance. <laughs> so it was a javelin throwing bushman. It was that a javelin was... throwing. <laughs> and then basically. Long distance runner. And now you've got, now you've got this protein source like that's going to last you. Okay, well, they had no fridges, so not days. But that's a major protein source and protein mm. drove the evolution of the brain, the development of the brain. And the one thing led to the other. So our ability to run as endurance athletes actually enabled us to develop. Mm. And uh, that's the theory that Lieberman puts forward. And he so got some great stuff in that paper. Like, for instance, we've we've got by far the longest tendon to muscle ratio in the primates. That's your Other animals, yeah. long muscles, short tendons. We've got long tendons, short muscles. Yeah. That's efficient. Which is, which is only used in running. Yeah. So the Achilles tendon. You don't even use it for walking. Right. Yeah, hardly at all. Achilles tendon and the arch, the plantar fascia, the longitudinal arch of the foot, mm-hmm. both contribute significantly to energy return when we run. So we are efficient where other primates just cannot keep going as long as we mm-hmm. do. We've got distal elongation, disproportionately long legs relative to our bodies. Mm-hmm. That's good because it gives us stride length, you know, the whole pendulum of running. Um, We've also got much bigger joints relative to limb length yeah, compared exactly. to animals, exactly. don't we? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Less hair. Shorter toes means more Shorter stability toe. in plantar flexion. Less hair for thermoregulation. Mm. Bipedal, which means that we're not exposing as much surface area to the sun and allowed us to run without overheating. Sweat glands, which mm. no other animal has. I mean, they used to study... Except for pigs. Is that right? I think pigs have sweat glands. I did not know that. Yeah. Uh, they used to study cheetahs in the lab and make mm. them run on treadmills, which must have been something to see. <laughs> and sure enough, after a couple of minutes, these cheetahs just slide down. They just mm. slide down with their paws in the air because that's how they lose the heat. Mm. And we don't have that problem because we can sweat and we don't, and we're delayed drinkers. You know, we didn't need, when those sand bushmen were hunting, they didn't need a Gatorade every 15 minutes. <laughs> they, they could go and they could tolerate. And this is why, again, it comes back to what we were saying earlier. We as humans, we can tolerate three to 5% dehydration. And thirst without any negative health consequence, because that's what it took to hunt. Yeah, they weren't stopping for a water break hunting that kudu. They couldn't. Yeah. And so we actually developed the ability to defend our osmolality and our fluid balance while exercising without drinking water. Like you have to, you know, mm. tell people nowadays, please drink. No, you don't. They don't we know yeah. the body knows. Yeah, yeah and, and then funniest of all was there's a table. Table one in that Lieberman paper. Have a look. Like short snout. <laughs> which is apparently quite important because it allows us to stabilize the head better. If our noses were longer, we'd have to spend more energy stabilizing our head, given oh, that we okay. have a vertical That's neck. That's an interesting one. It's a funny one. So Lieberman actually, I think, got an Ig Nobel. You know, they give the Nobel Prize for like meritorious work. Mm. The Ig Nobel Prize is also for good science, but in like odd, way, odd areas. Mm. And one of Lieberman's things was how we stabilize our head while we run. Wow. Because it's actually quite important yeah, that we sure. do it. We can and keep quite steady on our heads. Few, yeah. And like, yeah, so we can rotate our upper bodies mm. independent of our head. You can't see this, but I'm jiving. Yeah. Um, Your head's not moving. And my head's not moving <laughs> because I have the ability to control. Indep- anyway, yeah. plus throw. So now I can run, keep my head steady, and throw all at the same time. Yeah. So we actually, we're actually quite well evolved to be distance runners. No other animal, either consciously or not, would 
voluntarily put itself through a combat marathon and we can even though i mean it's true by the time you watch those last hour and you look at these things some of these people should not be running but actually yes, but they, they do they, but they, they, they do and yeah, they can absolutely i mean yeah. some big chaps come yeah. come across that finishing line in 12 hours mm. and they would there's no antelope that's going to do that for 90 kilometers no, to run yeah. you know to run 89k in 12 hours Oof. okay you're not it's still good going you know, it's not, but it's good yeah absolutely. and that's what that's what hunting was mm. okay they weren't running 90k they're probably running 20k yeah in four or five hours mm. which is a fast walk yeah but okay <laughs> yeah trail run i always love that story because whenever anybody says oh i'm not a runner i always say to them well actually yeah exactly <laughs> we are absolutely perfectly designed to be a runner no yeah. matter who you are so right. if anybody out there says well i'm not a runner i'm a i don't know a squash player or whatever but actually we are more designed to be a runner than any other sport that's yeah and that's, i've also used that to motivate people and say look it doesn't mean you can run a 210 marathon yeah doesn't even run a sub three or sub four but you can run yeah and yeah. you can you can walk if you can't run the whole time you can get there mm-hmm. and you yeah you're an endurance athlete mm. Yeah. So that's that's a nice little segue to talk about our probably our last uh, matter on this world of ultra distance running, and that's talking about men versus women. Mm. Now, there's a theory, well, not a theory, because I've experienced it myself at Comrades Marathon, that if you're running the Comrades Marathon, the first half you'll be running with all your male friends, and then in this last 20 kilometers, there's a lot of women that will go past you because the women are always stronger towards the end. And I, I don't know whether that is physiology or because women are just much better at pacing but there is something <laughs> about the fact that women and i think there were some studies done with uh, the late uh, dr lindsay um wait who did us who did some research in this she was herself a comrades winner right she was a comrades winner yes and she, Lindsay, she, someone else was she did some before. she did some research and i think wrote in one or two articles for us from runners world where there were some studies talking about how women were better in the second half of an ultra distance race versus men. Mm, mm. Thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's pacing. I think that's pacing, and that's probably psychology and understanding your own limits, which men don't tend to maybe do. Now, you see, in this conversation, though, we're always generalizing. I want to put that out there because <laughs> there are some yes, men who there pace are exceptions themselves exceptionally on both sides. well, yeah. and many women who go off too fast and then pay a big time in the last quarter of the race. Yeah. But I think in general, per hundred you probably find a higher prevalence of good pacing on the women's side because they're just more, see, I hesitate. It's, you know what it's like? It's the same as that thing about pain tolerance. Mm. People who make these sweeping generalizations about pain tolerance, but actually... You know, that's, that, that's, that's the theory. Oh, well, women can have babies, therefore they have a higher pain tolerance than men. And if a woman's had a baby, she can deal with more pain. <laughs> I mean, there are... There's no evidence to suggest that that's true. That as far I've as I know. seen. That I've no. seen. But I mean, there, maybe there is. I don't know. It seems like no. such a subjective thing. It's a. It's a. Anybody that's had a baby gets told if they're a runner, or you're going to be much stronger now because of the pain thing. Uh, yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know about that. But but on the men woman thing, there's there's three things that are often put forward. One is that as the distance goes up, women narrow the gap to men. Yes. That's not the case. That's not the case. That's no, not the case. Right. I like when that you look was at the, the when you look at the one hundred meter record, the shortest sprint, okay, I suppose sixty, mm-hmm. <laughs> the hundred meter record, it's like eleven, twelve percent. The marathon is ten and a half percent. The fifty mile record is something like sixteen, seventeen percent slower in mm-hmm. women than in men. The hundred mile record is about fifteen percent slower in women than in men. Mm-hmm. The twenty four hour record is about sixteen percent slower in women than in men. Wow. The forty eight hour record is about fifteen percent slower in women than in men. Okay. So the best versus the best, the gap is the same. 
There's no. I'm very surprised to hear that. I actually. know because that mm. thing that thing gets thrown out a lot, and people mm. say, oh, "Well, eventually women would beat men." Well, after 48 hours, and I, my battery and my computers died now a little bit, but the, I mean, the record is like insane. The 24 hour record's 300 odd k's by by a man in in 24 hours. It's yeah. unbelievable. Amazing. Over 48 hours, it's like 550 kilometers. The the male female gap, even at 500 and something k's, is still the same as it is in the mm. 100 meter race. <laughs> There's no difference. Now, yeah. the thing but we is, have some, some, seen some extraordinary female performances. Yes. We, we, I mean, I remember Anne Trayson, who was a winner of the Comrades Marathon. She won, I think it was the Leadful 100 miler overall back in the early 90s. Yeah, and in fact, in that results list I gave you earlier, where Killian Jornet in July broke the record in that US race, sixth in that race was Courtney Dowalter. Yes. But she's 20% behind him. Yes. So the best woman and the both course records twenty percent difference. Yes, okay, that but makes sixth sense. in the race. So yes. what does that tell you? That's your argument from earlier. There's not the same depth. That there's a depth thing in trail running, and what happens mm. sometimes is that you will get these backyard ultras, for instance, where the second last person standing is a woman. But the truth is, there's no single global world championship for that where all the best people go to at once. Yeah. So sometimes you will get a difference between the best man and woman of thirty percent. Other times, the woman will be better than the best men. So the you know, the gap's negative five percent, but you're not comparing like with like. You know what no. I mean? And I don't mean to be disparaging and so on now in this in this respect. But the the truth is, you have to be careful what you compare. Like if I go down to the local park run, in in Ronneboch here, like the same standards of comparison are not the case there compared to what'll happen in the London Marathon. <laughs> no, it's not the same thing. You know, so you can get an outlier performance in a small selected group it's only when you expand and look at the appropriate best versus best or the average versus average that it starts to become different right i suppose people love the hype i mean we've seen in south africa uh, uh, in 1989 fifth front of merva i think finished 15th overall in the mm. comrades math and beating many of the men's elite oh yeah i remember and that. then had a stain who broke the app record a couple of years ago was the i think the second fastest mm. of the of the entire field including <laughs> men over the last eight kilometers i remember that which was fascinating yes. um so of course the, the 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 media and people jumped on that to suggest that wow the longer had a stain given another 10 k she would have won the race, which she didn't. Yeah, but yeah, you see what they don't I, acknowledge. I what they don't acknowledge is over the first eighty k's. Yes, the men were thirty minutes faster. Yes, so, true. So it's like you got to look at the totality of the evidence there, you know. And again, this mm. is not to, this is not to be disparaging. It's just to make the physiological point that there mm. is a reality that whatever the difference is, and it's this whole testosterone androgen thing, that difference is the same over a hundred meters, mm. nine and a half, ten seconds, as it is over nine hours, as it is over three hundred and fifty kilometers. Mm. Um, but now, where this gets interesting, I think, is that if you match people for a certain distance, women will be better at a longer distance. So in other words, if you take a group of men and women who have the same 10K time, mm. more often than not, the women will outperform those men at the marathon. If you match them at the marathon, the women will be better at the comrades. If you match them at the marathon, the men will be better at the 10K. So within a group across a spectrum, women tend to be better than men over time. So there is distance. some quite that's, that's yeah. So it depends that, how you frame it. That's evidence, isn't it? It depends how you frame it, though. Yes, exactly. So the best at the ultra, the gap is the same as the best at the marathon, and the best at the ten k, and the best at the one k. Right. But when matched at the marathon, so in other words, if you took, and this is obviously not always going to be the case, but let's say you take a man and a woman who can run a three-hour marathon, and you said. 
you have to bet on one of these people in the comrades. I'm putting my money on the woman <laughs> yes. in that situation, right? If you said they matched at the marathon, now they're going to run a 10K, who's your money on? I'm saying man. Yes. Yeah. I think that's probably a fair assumption, actually. So, so, so yeah. Yeah. So within, within an individual and within a direct matched comparison, mm. women are better at distance than men are. And that's probably most likely because of pacing. Pacing, uh, the ability to oxidize fuels um, mm. differently, potentially, mm. uh, body to power to weight, because yep. they tend to be smaller, right? So if you've got if you've got a three-hour marathon man and woman, maybe the man is 70 kilograms, the woman's 61, yep. for instance. Yep. So as we go longer and longer, and you've got to carry that weight for 90K, not 40, that starts to become a handicap for that man to be heavier, mm. whereas in a shorter distance, less so. So I think it's probably those those issues. Because we know, for instance, at the same mass that males are 30% stronger than women mm. for muscle strength, but that muscle strength doesn't really help you over 89 kilometers. Yeah. You need some other attributes. And so whatever it is that gave you the advantage when you needed strength is no longer in your favor when you go long. In fact, it might become a weakness because yeah. you've got a heavier frame to carry so those are the reasons for it so yeah so so the answer is both yes and no women are better at long distance events but depending who you compare them to <laughs> yes yes <laughs> i remember chrissy wellington also the iron man she had one of the fastest i think in iron man south africa she was sort of the second or third fastest marathon yeah at the end of the iron man over the entire field which is another example of sure. people saying when she was the you know, one of the dominant female athletes that she was going to be the one that was potentially going to get into the top five position amongst the men, which she never did, but she was an outstandingly good runner. But she'd lost so much time on the bike and the swim that she, even though the marathon was good, it wasn't enough to make up for that difference in the other two disciplines. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's a fascinating it issue and area. Yeah, it's a very interesting discussion. I've never know? seen pacing analysis well enough done, mm. done well enough to answer the question around whether they pace themselves better because your prediction would be, so let's say it's a 90K race. If you pace it well, okay, comrades is hard because it's actually like, it's not a flat race. It's actually very hilly. Yep. So in actual fact, the second half should almost- 1,700 meters of climbing on the down run. So this, and, and am I right in saying the second half is always, should always be faster than the first half? On the down run, in but theory, both, yes. Both. Uh, no, because it's well, sort of a plateau and then it goes down. So in yeah, the up run, the in last the up 30Ks run, is a lot more downhill. In the, in the down on run. the down run, yeah. Which means that on the up run, the last 30Ks has got mm, less got less downhill, less, less, downhill. less uphill. No, more on the up run. So for those of you that don't know, it runs different directions each year. One is Durban to Maritzburg, Maritzburg to Durban. This year is Maritzburg to Durban, seen as the down run. But the actual climbing is around about the same, but it comes at different stages of the event. So on the down run, there is less climbing in the second half. On the up run, there is more climbing in the second half. Um, but it's it's marginal. But you, mm. you certainly go through some big climbs in that second half. So. So my, my, my conceptual illustration is that if, if you assume that the two halves are equal and mm. you pace it perfectly, you'll spend half your time in the first half and half your time in the second half by distance. Yes. So your first 45 and your second 45 would be equal. Yeah? Mm. Yeah. If, if women are pacing themselves better than men, more men would go 45% of their time in the first 45Ks and 55% in the second 45 because they spend disproportionately too long in the second half yes. and women would be the other way around. I've never seen anyone quantify that. No. 
it would be interesting to look at. Mm. I think uh, it's something to do with purely because men, testosterone plays a role in that start. They get all macho <laughs> and they decide they're going to go out fast and strong and uh, suddenly hit the wall, whereas women are not susceptible to that I think that's, rash pacemaking. I think that's inarguably true. <laughs> but as a, again, it's a generalization yes, where like is. per 100 people are probably likely to find that. But again, I don't know. It would be interesting to know. Yeah. That's an example where comrades could... Because they've got these timing mats, like, I don't yeah, know, there must be six that. checkpoints in that race. I know the timing people there, so I might try and find out if they could give well, us a breakdown. Tell it. Let's do it. What I'll, percentage? I'll work it out easily, because the, 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 the chip will indicate what sex you are. Yes. So we yes. could do this quite easily, actually. It'd be yes. very easy to I'll do. I'll see if I can get their stats. They'll be interesting to you, do in a further podcast you, down the road. You get it, and I'll analyze yeah. it. Yeah. Easy. Right, that uh, pretty much wraps up our discussion for this week. And for those of you involved in the ultra distance running, what well, I'm, th- I'm sure this has been uh, an interesting topic for you. But uh, let us know your thoughts on, uh, first of all, men versus women, about pacing, about whether you think there are other endurance events, which we should have mentioned as uh, the big favorites amongst uh, endurance events. But uh, from us for now, it's goodbye. Follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.